0: let's get at it. This um, Christmas, we are taking an entirely different look at the story of Christmas than we ever have here before, at least. It is uh, unorthodox, but it is not unbiblical. Here's what I mean. Traditionally, when, when, when the church looks at Christmas and, and begins kind of the season of reflection, you see this in the church, but heck, you see it on a lot of lawns around your neighborhood. We look at the birth of Jesus uh, from a manger scene perspective, right? Uh, that's how two of the gospel writers uh, recorded it. They wrote of it as a historical event, and it was. Now now remember, if, if you're new to, to the Bible, there are four gospels in your New Testament. the New Testament opens with four accounts of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus: Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, right? And, and the four writers believe that Jesus' coming was good news, and so that's why they're called Gospels. They're the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark. The good news is told by those different writers. Mark, he he starts his account with Jesus as an adult, so he doesn't give us any real details there. Matthew and Luke, they record the events of Jesus as you know them, with the details you're familiar with. Joseph and Mary and angels and stars and wise men and the drummer boy, right? The little drummer boy. The little drummer boy is actually not in there. It concerns me somewhat that no one thought that was funny. (laughs) See, there's lots of reasons that we believe those historical details are true. In fact, you should spend some time in Luke, going through Luke. You can get all of, all of the deets on the birth of Jesus. Luke writes more about the details of Jesus' birth than anyone. And what's interesting is he didn't even know Jesus. He says he set out because he was a physician and he had heard a lot about Jesus. He set out to write an orderly account of Jesus' story. So as an educated man... He sets out to get to the bottom of it. And so there's lots of details about the historical stuff going on surrounding Jesus' birth. And so you've got Mark with nothing, Matthew with a little something, Luke with lots of details, and then you come upon John. John is the the fourth of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It comes last in your New Testament. But, But the interesting thing about John is he was also the last one to write his telling of the good news. Now John, unlike Luke, knew Jesus. In fact, by John's account, I think John would tell you he was the person that Jesus loved the most. In fact, that's what he did often refer to himself as, the person that Jesus loved the most. And my guess is that Jesus probably did share some level of intimacy with John that was different than maybe some of the other boys. Because if you remember when Jesus was being crucified, he looks down from the cross to his mother Mary and he says, John, behold your mother and Mary, this is your son. In other words, kind of saying to to John, John, I'm giving you my most prized earthly possession. Take care of my mom so you'd imagine that, that John, having this relationship with Jesus, and then this long-term relationship with Mary, would know the events surrounding Jesus' birth better than anybody else. But yet it was John who was the last of the four men to write. John, who now is maybe 40 or 50 years after the events uh, of Jesus' life. Think through what had happened in those years, in those decades, right? Uh, his fellow disciples, Peter... Um, uh, Paul, they'd likely all been martyred by this time think of what John has seen, the starting of the church, the persecution of the church he himself had been persecuted and banished to the island of Patmos that's where God gave John that revelation, that's the last book in your Bible it's a book called Revelation, that's written by the same John John was given a revelation about what the end times would look like and what Jesus' return to earth would look like it was John who, after all of these things and all of this reflection, this decades-long of reflection, he decides to tell the story of Jesus' birth from a different angle. He like he had been hearing of what the other gospels, gospel writers had told. See, John, something had crystallized for him in these years. There was a message that needed to be told in a, in a different way. Maybe the historical details were all out already. But he wanted to share some different news. It was good news about the birth and the return, the coming return of this Jesus. He wanted to communicate that story up front. Now, as I I write this this morning, as I was thinking about all of these writers thought that this birth story was really good news, and that John specifically, because he had this vision about Jesus' return one day, how that was going to be good news. I remembered a, a, a picture I saw come across in my uh, Facebook feed this week. Um, next week, we're going to talk about our role in the good news. But but this week, this, this picture came up. Are you familiar with dog shaming? <laughs> the Concept of dog shaming, do we have that, Maggie? <laughs> <laughs> well, we did have it. There he is. I don't know if you can see that. It says... I ate the baby Jesus from our Christmas nativity set, not looking forward to the second coming. (laughs) So the birth and second coming of Jesus is not good news for all of us. But for John, this was very good news. And he wanted to communicate it at a different level and in a different way. And so here's how he started. He said, in the beginning... If that sounds familiar, we went over it last week. It's because John, after all of this time that he had reflection in reflection, he decided, and as a guy that spent a lot of time on an island alone, he decided he was going to go back to the very familiar story that many of us know and all of his, his readers would have known, the story of creation in Genesis 1-1. The very first book in your Bible, In the Beginning. He goes on, In the Beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that's been made. And so John describes Jesus as the Word. Why? Because if you remember, how did God God create? He spoke it into creation. This is Jesus' role in the Trinity. Jesus, the Word of God, is the Creator. He made all things. And now here comes John's message about Him. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man, he goes into a little history here, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light. So that through him, this is John the Baptist, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Very little history, but a lot about light. Light and life. Fifty years of thinking about the story and John reduces Jesus' birth and, and for that matter, I think I can show you his life to one word. Light, and the coming of light to John is really, really good news. But I'm not so sure we get it. A bit earlier, John had written three letters to some churches. We're not sure which churches in particular, but they had been struggling with an issue in these churches, which essentially was that they had come to believe that Jesus was, is who he said he is, that He was the Messiah, that He had died you know, to, to, to take our place, to pay for our sins, right? The punishment due us was borne by Him and that we can have new life. They believed all that. But it didn't change the way the people lived at all. And so John, because this light concept meant something to him, and we're trying to figure out why he was so big on it, John writes to those churches. Here's how he writes his opening sentences again. That which was... From the beginning, remember, in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, uh, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched. This is John establishing for his audience, even for you and I, his, his authenticity. I was there. I saw it. I touched it. I'm not telling you guys about something I heard about. I saw it. I touched it. He said, "This we proclaim concerning the word of life." There's word again. The life appeared, we've seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Life again, which was set with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. John says, look, I'm telling you about this with a reason. So you might have fellowship with God. Fellowship is... One of those church words. I never heard of the word fellowship till I started going to church. And for a while, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Anytime I've experienced fellowship, at least as, uh, as it was made known to me, it wasn't all that fun. It usually surrounded potluck suppers. I'm not a huge fan. Or boring conversations in a church lobby. Let's go have some fellowship. I think not. But that's not what Jesus uh, John is saying. I'm not inviting you to a cruddy potluck. Fellowship in the Greek is a word koinonia. And that word, as John write it, writes it, it, depi- it depicts an interactive relationship between God and believers sharing a new life in Christ. In a sense, John is saying, I'm writing you this so that you might know and interact with and have a relationship with the living God. I'm telling you it for that reason. And he goes on. So here's the message. just what I want you to know. And it's going to sound familiar. This is the message we've heard from him, and we could declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Now John, who in the third chapter of this letter writes one of the most famous claims about God, that God is love, long before he sees God as love, he equally, and I think I would argue more importantly, sees God as light. And John would say, isn't it wonderful? God is light. And to think at 21st audience, century audience, we go, well, what's so great about light? Last week, we looked at what light does. This week, I want to look at something we don't spend a lot of time on, darkness. The other night, uh, I don't know if you, uh, what happened at your house, some of you, I I have some friends that live in Sparta, their power was out for two or three days, no heat, but uh, I'm sitting there watching TV, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, bang, all the lights go off, Darkness right? And when that happens, I don't like the dark. So what do we do? We do, I don't know if you do in our house, in your house, what we do in our house, we immediately, oh boy, we get up, start looking for candles and flashlights because I gotta get some light back on in this house. But if you're like us, when you get to the junk drawer cabinet and you pull out the flashlight, what happens? (laughs) Nothing, because you haven't changed the battery since the last time the power went out in the house, right? And so you're frustrated, and now you're trying to find a match in the dark. But something strange starts to happen after a little bit of time, right? Your eyes begin to adjust. And suddenly, you know, it's not as dark as I thought it was. Now it starts to get a little cold, and I don't like the cold. But then it occurs to me, because I'm cheap, you know, this isn't a bad way to live. No electric, no gas. Turns out I can see all right. If I didn't have a 16-year-old daughter, I might enjoy living this way. This is what happens, right? In the dark. I wasn't as scared. I began to operate okay within it. When Joan and I first got married, we had uh, had what what we in America call a starter house because our first house is never good enough. Can I get an amen? Um, We had our starter house. And in the starter house, I mean, I... I didn't have an ensuite bathroom. How can somebody live like this, I ask you? And so the bathroom was in the hallway, and it was a small hall. It was only about six or eight feet long. And on the other side of the hall was Courtney's room, and Courtney was a baby. And so, whenever I had to go to the bathroom, I had to go out into the hall. Now, if I flipped the light on, that woke a baby up, and then a certain woman that was married to me, that raised that child, was not a big fan of the baby being woken up in the middle of the night. I learned really well how to operate in the dark. I could hop out of that bed, go to the bathroom, and get back in bed no lights at all. But then Courtney became a toddler. Have you ever tried to walk around in the dark in a house where a toddler lives? It's very dangerous. You will become friends and very familiar with Legos in a way you never have quite before. The searing pain of eight dots going into the bottom of your foot. It's dangerous to walk in the dark. But I think we forget sometimes, but that's the message of, of John. He goes, I think you've forgotten that you're walking around in the dark. I think you've just gotten used to it. As a people, we've gotten so used to the darkness, we forgot about the danger. And when you get used to the dark, this is why when I'm telling you, isn't it great? Light has come. Amen. Yeah, I don't really feel that, right? Because we get really used to not only do we get used to, the, to, to living in the dark, it kind of becomes our home. And when the dark becomes your home, what's so great about the news about light? Now see, the church used to understand this. It used to be a big deal on the church calendar. It was a season called Advent. We don't talk much about that anymore. But I don't know if any of you saw it. There was a great article in the New York Times last week entitled, Want to get into the Christmas spirit? Face the darkness. How I fell in love with the season of Advent. I just loved this article because the writer got it. Here's what she said. She goes, in the church calendar, every period of celebration has always been preceded by a time of preparation. And historically, Advent, the liturgical season that begins four Sundays before Christmas, was a way to prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls for Christmas, for Christians, Christmas is the celebration of Jesus' birth. Remember, this is written in the New York Times. That light has come into the darkness, as the, as the Gospel of John says, the darkness could not overcome it. But Advent bids us to pause and look with complete honesty at the darkness. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still wracked with conflict and violence and suffering and darkness. Advent holds space for our grief. It reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by evil in the world, but we're wielders of it. We contribute our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. G.K. Chesterton wrote that original sin is, quote, the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. The believer and the atheist alike can agree that there's an undeniable brokenness to the world, a sickness that needs remedy. Whether we assign blame to human sinfulness, a political party, por- corporate greed, ignorance, tribalism, nationalism, we can all admit there are things going on that are not as they should be, or at least not as we wish they were. American culture, this is so true. The minute New Year's is over, what are we going to start? What do you, you go to Target, what are you going to see? Sales on last year's Christmas stuff. In fact, I'm going to tell you, when you go to Target probably the week before Christmas, do you know what you're going to see signs for? Valentine's Day. American culture insists that we run at a breathless pace from sugar lace celebration to celebration. Three months of Christmas to the Super Bowl, then Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, and on and on we go. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, fun, fun. But life isn't a Disney cruise. And the tyranny of relentless mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often ironically feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer. The collect, listen to this now. The collective lie that through enough work and positivity, we can perfect our lives and our world. And that's my premise to you today. I think that's the great lie of, the, of Christmas, that everything is great. Everything's great. I've seen your Facebook post, guys. Your lives are great. Family, great. Kids, great. Job, great. Finances great. Relationships, great. Marriage, great. And at Christmas, well, it's just great on steroids. (laughs) Right? Things aren't bad. There's nothing wrong here. There's nothing to see here. Just live like I do on Christmas, and everything will be fine. There's no dark. And even if there were, here's how you fix it. Just live more like my Facebook post. And see, when you live like this, when you believe that lie... No wonder the coming of light doesn't seem like that great a news, because you never stop to look at the dark. You see, the way the church used to operate, Christmas got celebrated on Christmas, and then there was 12 days of celebration, but December was a month to to pause and look and go, I have to understand that I have to be reminded that I live in the dark, Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet that God used to speak to the people of Israel who had lost their way. At this time of year, and at Easter, you hear lots of quotes from Isaiah. We ignore them the other ten months of the year. But he had a lot to say about the coming of Jesus, the life and death of Jesus. In chapter 9 of of his book, he refers to God's people as a people who are walking in deep darkness. Why? Well, here's how he started his, his book Hear me, you heavens. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and I brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. You know, the ox knows its master. The donkey knows its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, They've forsaken the Lord, they've spurned the Holy One of Israel, and they've turned their backs on Him. Welcome to the dark, where we forget who our Father is and, and whose kids we are. In a sense, we lose our way, our identities. We start looking around in the dark, trying to feel our way around, trying to answer some of life's deepest questions there. We look for answers in the dark for who I am and what's the point and do I matter and am I good enough and do I have what it takes? Because, see, when you live in the darkness good enough and you and I were born into it, you didn't do anything to get there, you were just born. When you're born into the darkness, you learn survival skills. You learn to walk well in the dark. You adopt to the rules of the darkness to survive. A scarcity mindset. We talked about that. There's not enough to go around, so i got to get mine before you get yours. A a Darwinian culture where only the strong survive and the weak are marginalized and pushed aside. And greed and gluttony and envy and jealousy and gossip and slander. They're all tools of the dark. We've learned how to survive here. I was talking to my mom this week. Mom is sick and she's a little older now and talking about... (laughs) kind of a morose we're talking about the brevity of life and she was saying yeah she goes it just seemed like the other day i put you on the school bus and i cried and cried when i put you on the bus and i said well why'd you cry and she said uh well looking at me she said i knew you were going to get picked on um (laughs) she probably did say i think i probably weighed about 15 pounds but my head was still the same size (laughs) but she said because when you were in my house i could protect you But I knew when I put you on that bus that I couldn't protect you anymore, and I knew what was going to happen when you got on that bus. You were going to lose a little bit of your innocence because it's dark out there. The Apostle Paul, Christianity's greatest convert, he wrote to the church in a city called Ephesus, and he wrote to them because they were taking all of their darkness training, all of the skills they had acquired in the darkness, and they were bringing it into the community of light. He said to them, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And then he names them. He goes, amongst you, there's there's not going to be, I don't want you to have a hint of sexual immorality or, or impurity or greed. These are improper for God's people. There shouldn't be any obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking. Those are all out of place. They're all tools of the dark. And then he says something that's one of those Bible verses that I, You know, there's a couple of Bible verses that you just read, and you're like, why'd you put that there, God? Like, I don't like this verse. But it's there, so don't shoot the messenger. They crucified the messenger once. See, here's the deal. I tend to think I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I know I'm better than most of you. I'm a pastor after all, right? Just joking. Don't email. But I tend to think I'm a good guy. You know, I don't, I screw up, right? But I'm not a bad guy. I'm a good husband, good provider, good father. I'm not a bad guy. I'm a nice guy, a good person, if you will. But then Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament after the Gospels, Paul, who was this convert, but, but had lived this, this, righteous, this life of righteousness and lived up to all these moral standards, Paul, who kept all of the laws, here's what he said to the Ephesians about him and you and me. He said, you were once darkness. I want you to just pause on that. He didn't say you were in the dark. He said you were dark. You were once in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness, the truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Paul says it's not just that we're in the darkness. It exuded from us at one point. It was part of our core. It was deep in us. We're not intrinsically good people who sometimes do something bad. But we have at our core a broken nature. And we wind up contributing to the darkness. Paul did. It was him who said, right, why is it that the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I wind up doing? And he asked that great question, who is it that will save me from this body of death? To which John would say, cue the light. Are you used to the dark?" Have you gotten good at walking in it? I was reflecting on this week just how good I am at it. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> I know who you are. And I'm good at walking in the dark. I, I was reflecting on it, and one of the things that occurred to me is so much of the way I've reared my children... So many of, you know, Dad always said, was to train them up on how to be good dark walkers. As if that was the only world that there was, and the only one that mattered. This is the story of our darkness, of December, of Advent, because the light is not all that good news until you really get it. That's why John kept writing, if we claim to have fellowship with him, but we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. How do we lie to ourselves? Well, if we claim to be without sin, oh, you know, I'm not a bad person. I might have screwed up a couple of times, but I'm, you know, not not a bad guy. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we can make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And here's how he concludes, this is so good. This is the same John that introduced the birth story of Jesus around light. This is the verdict. Light is coming to the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They got really good at living there. He goes on, everyone who does evil hates the light, of course they do, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. We get so used to living here, to teaching our kids how to get ahead here, to prospering here, to winning here. We actually begin to love it here. We can allow the dark to become home. It becomes familiar. We don't even see it around us anymore. And can I just be honest with you For those of us, this is an even bigger threat for those of us that live in Morris County, New Jersey, because the reality for us is that we're really good at living in the dark. We're really comfortable in it. Big houses, nice cars, never hungry. But every once in a while, every once in a while, something happens it's like what I've, I've, I've called over the years a lampshade moment where the lampshade goes up and light shines into the darkness. When the shades get pulled back and you see things differently. I remember the first time it happened for me. The person that, that I've lost that was closest to me so far was my grandmother. I, I, was, I just loved my grandmother. I spent as many days as I could. I used to go to her house and she died. I remember driving to her funeral one day and I, I could tell you exactly where I was. I was on Route Forty Six. And I had this moment where it felt like a lampshade went up and I saw the world for what it was for for a few moments. And I started to go, I don't like it here. People I love die here. And I got to the funeral and we made her all up like she was just sleeping. Doesn't she look good? And the shade slowly came down. But there's those moments where you start to go, it's not safe here when Courtney, who's our firstborn, she was a little girl, we had her in a private school for the first few years, uh, and then we switched her into the public schools, and, and, and there's no bash in public schools. All my kids went to the public schools. Big fan of public schools, especially school, I mean, because we li- we're good dark dwellers here. Our schools are fantastic, but put her on the bus the first day, and I remember what my mom thought, like, oh, my little girl, and I thought to myself, you know what? You're making too big a deal of it. It's not that bad out there, and she came home, and walked in the house, and I said, how'd school go, honey? And she said, it went fine. In fact, I got this note from this boy on the bus, but I don't know what it means. So I, I fourth grade, I took the note, and I looked at it, and it said, I want to have sex with you. Day one. Shade up. <laughs> See what I mean? You get really used to it. Caroline, my youngest, One of her friends uh, last year or two years ago passed from cancer after fighting it forever, a little girl. I've been to Guatemala, I've seen what, I've seen the destruction of humanity in that garbage dump. I've met with you and I've wept over your kids who you've lost to anxiety and depression. It's these lampshade moments and they come for all of us when light comes into the dark and you finally go, I don't wanna live like this or here, Anymore. Cue the light. Isaiah the prophet, foreseeing the coming of Jesus, said, The people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light is dawned, for unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the story of light and Christmas. Not that a son was earned, but that a son was given as a gift. Not that our forgiveness was earned, it couldn't be. All of us are part of the problem. We all have some blood on our hands. We were all not just in the dark, but we were all darkness ourselves. Forgiveness wasn't earned, it was given. Here's how Isaiah recorded God saying it to those who had turned their backs on Him and had forgotten whose kids they were. He said, come, let us settle the matter. How? Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be made as white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they'll be like wool. Our hope is not in ourselves. That is the lie of Christmas. It's in the commercials. It's in the TV specials. It's in the Norman Rockwell pictures. Tim Keller, in his book Hidden Christmas, crystallizes this way of thinking when he shares another New York Times piece written on Christmas Day in the 90s. This is what what the, the, the author, from a secular perspective, came to understand. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, we have the light within us We're the ones who can dispel the darkness. We just have to work together. Work harder. Be nicer. One of the most thoughtful world leaders of the 20th century was Vaclav Havel, the first president of the Czech Republic. And for his people, once they had dispelled communism, the thought in his country and many others was, communism was the great evil and all we need now is democracy because all boats will rise and that will put an end to all of the problems. He had a unique vantage point to peer into socialism and capitalism, and he wound up not, not optimistic that it either was going to solve humanity's problems. Here's what he wrote. Western governments, he said, are organized on a flawed premise, not far removed from the Soviet system that just collapsed. The modern era has been dominated by the culminating belief, he said, that the world is, whole, is a wholly knowable system governed by finite numbers of universal laws that man can grasp and rationally direct. Objectively describing, explaining, controlling everything. In other words, we figured it out. We're we're good at dwelling here now. We, We can make a life here in the dark. But he would go on to say, pursuit of the material good life, greed, gluttony, ego, all the things Paul said, it doesn't help humanity save itself. Nor is democracy alone enough. A turning to and seeking of of being or God is needed, said Havel, whose credo became known as living in truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The light of truth. Hmm, who said those things? The relationship to the world that modern science fostered and sharpened appears to have exhausted its potential, he said in Philadelphia. The relationship is missing something. It fails to connect with the most intrinsic nature of reality and with natural human experience. Our hope is not here. It's not in us. It's not... Can we agree that politics is not going to get us out of this? Right? It's not in science or philosophy. It's not even in religion. It's in the person of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, who illuminates for us the darkness around us, the depth of darkness in us, and yet still says... Come, all of you who are heavy laden. The darker the better you'll be able to see the light. Come, I'll give you forgiveness and rest and life. The days of the reign of the darkness are coming to an end. That's the story of Christmas. Here's how Isaiah saw it: he said, Many people will come. And say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. And there he'll teach us his ways so that we we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords, which they used to kill each other with, into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come. Descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This Christmas Sunday, can I ask you a deep question? Have you gotten too used to walking in the dark? Have you taken on its practices? Are they labels that you've you've become proud of? Are you teaching them to your children? Can you this week maybe just set aside this Christmas week a couple of minutes in the morning and ask the Lord to reveal to you, Lord, where is it that I have gotten too comfortable in the dark? Lord, show me the darkness around me. Pull the shade up so that I might see. Help me to long for light. In what ways, Lord, have I lived like this was my home and that this was all that mattered? You know, John said, if you're... If, you're, if you'd confess your sins, if you'd acknowledge your darkness, you'd forgive your sins. Your best efforts, all your best work, it's not going to make you right with God. Only Jesus can do that. Though they be like scarlet, because unto you a son has been given, they can be made white as snow. As the band comes up. Mend This Christmas, do you understand why John said... for you is that you would take the time to open your eyes to the darkness around you. May the shade be drawn up for you. Don't buy the Christmas lie that everything's fine, fine, and just finer now that it's Christmas time. Everything is fine, especially with a Lexus and a bow. May you take the time to open your eyes, not just to the darkness around you, but to the darkness within you stop and reflect. Don't hate the light. Don't run back to the dark and hide. Allow the Spirit of Jesus to search you, to know you, to convict you. And when He does, confess your sins so that He might cleanse you and purify you and change you. This Christmas may you understand like never before that for all of us a people walking in deep darkness a glorious light has dawned in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord